Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are David Crow, our banking editor, Nicholas McGaw, our retail banking correspondent, Brooke Masters, our comment editor, and also Caroline Binham, our financial regulation correspondent, and Jane Croft, our law courts correspondent. Down the line from Dublin, we're joined by John Cronin from Good Buddy Stockbrokers. This week, we'll be looking at Metrobank, the UK challenger bank, which saw a massive fall in its share price last week. We'll get an update from Davos, from David Crow, and finally from Caroline, a look at the Barclays trial as it moves into its second week. First, though, Metrobank. Now, this is a startup bank founded seven or eight years ago by Vernon Hill, a US businessman who'd built up banks in the US very successfully and thought he would bring that model to the UK. Last week, the bank suffered a near 40% fall in its share price. We'll come to the details of that and what the ramifications are. But first, I thought it'd be interesting to talk to Brooke, because you covered Vernon Hill and the bank that he built very successfully in the US, Commerce Bank. What was this, 10, 15 years ago? 15, I think. Commerce Bank was founded in 1973. And Hills built it into quite a big regional bank with about 400 branches by 2007. However, in 2007, he got himself into trouble because the banking regulators took a very dim view of a bunch of contracts where he was doing related party deals, particularly with InterArch, which is a design firm run by his wife, which... Commerce Bank was paying to design the branches. And now Commerce has this very dramatic red and blue design that actually looks virtually identical to Metro Bank. So they paid lots of money to Alma. They also had a deal with the golf course that Vernon owned where they paid lots of money, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to bring people to entertain at the golf course. And there was some suggestion that he was buying real estate that they was then selling to the company for their bank branches. The regulators basically said, you got to go. And off he went in 2008. And then he popped up a year later in the UK doing a very similar type model, as you say, the look of Metro Bank here, which he eventually got authorised by regulators to start up, is very similar. And the business model, I guess, is similar. He started with one branch, as he did in the US with Commerce Bank, and is building it now 66 branches, I think, at the last count. Nick, what happened last week to disrupt this successful rollout of this bank? It was quite a bad day for them, to say the least. That 40% share price drop was the worst one-day drop for any British bank since RBS was bailed out in the financial crisis. There was kind of two factors in it. On the simple front, there was a profit warning. There's pressures across the mortgage market in the UK at the moment. They're hitting everyone. And Metro is especially reliant on mortgages directly, plus the broader property and real estate market. So that hit their revenue growth. The more unusual thing was this discovery that they'd misclassified the riskiness of a large number of their commercial and buy-to-let loans. Fixing that meant their risk-weighted assets jumped by 900 million 
pounds and that in turn puts them in a much less healthy position capital wise than it was previously thought that they were. Let me bring Brooke back in for a final thought from you on this and harking back to another job that you've done here at the FT covering financial regulation. How is it possible that a bank run by bankers with considerable experience actually get the risk weighting wrong? This is a standardised risk weighting. This should be about just sticking a number in a box on a form designed by regulators. How can you get that wrong? That's a really good question. The last time somebody got their weightings really badly wrong, it was through misclassifying fundamentally in that they were misdescribing the loans in the boxes. There aren't models here. This isn't some complicated fight about whether they're using the right algorithms to measure their bank riskiness. This is literally misreporting. It is a fundamental failure. And it's also really important because standardized risk weightings, which is what Metro uses, require more capital. And so now that they've screwed this up, they are not going to get permission anytime soon to use their own models because if they can't even use the simple form, they're not going to be allowed to use the hard form. And that's bad news for their growth. And of course, they were counting on being able to get those models of their own to reduce their capital requirements, as you say. Let's now go to the professional view. We're joined by John Cronin at Good Buddy. So, John, thanks very much for joining us. We've heard there about exactly what happened. How undermining is this for Metro going forward? Because obviously it implies the bank is going to have to operate with higher capital going forward at a time when arguably it's going to come under more pressure as well on the credit side of its business as the credit cycle turns. How bearish are you? We're pretty bearish even at this point. In and of itself, in terms of the risk weighting move last week, clearly that's unhelpful from a returns perspective. So it will put more pressure on the bank to attain the ROE targets that it has set forth. It also accelerates the need for further capital injection. I mean, our numbers prior to the news last week embedded a £350 million CEP1 capital raise in the second half of this year. Now, that would have catered for capital requirements out to the end of 2020, ignoring any potential IRB-related benefit. But now, on our numbers today, it looks as if a £300 million CT1 capital raise will be necessary in the first half of this year. So all of that puts pressure on return targets, and that's assuming that this capital raise can be achieved. Absolutely. Um, that's a key question in the short term, isn't it? With shareholder confidence having been knocked and obviously an issue at these prices, far more dilutive, that has to be a question mark. Can they raise the money? Yes, and I suspect there's a lot of work going on in the background now, ahead of the full-year results publication on the 27th of February, to win shareholders' support for potentially a recalibrated strategy. Because I think my own sense is that the capital raise, the 300 million capital raise last year, was done under the assumption that the IRB accreditation would be received potentially in the second half of 2019. Just to clarify, when you talk about the IRB, this is the internal model-based capital calculation, which theoretically should reduce their capital requirement. Correct. So currently, Metro is working through its application, which it has submitted to the regulator to achieve this accreditation, which would have the effect of reducing risk weightings and therefore capital requirements in terms of their quantum of capital that needs to be held against any mortgage, for example. And surely, given that the bank has made such a gross error with standardised risk weightings, it's not credible, is it, that they would approve an expedited move to a model-based system? I mean, that would look very bad from a regulator's point of view. Yes, in one vein, yes. But I do see it as somewhat isolated as well. I think, look, clearly the hiccup in terms of the risk weightings on the standardised model 
will not enhance their relationship with the regulator, to say the least. Furthermore, I think look, there has been some negative media comment in a wider context, which means the regulator is likely to apply ever greater scrutiny as Metro proceeds with its IRB work. But separately, look, we've been long circumspect in terms of the bank's ability to attain that accreditation in such a short time frame. So effectively, it would imply if they were to receive IRB approval in H2 of this year, that they would have done it effectively within 18 months. While CYBG, another bank that has recently secured such approval, did secure the IRB approval in an 18-month time frame, it must be borne in mind that CYBG did use those IRB models when under National Australia Bank ownership for many years. And, you know, I've been through it with that bank as well as other challenger banks who are currently preparing for the process and the level of detail and scrutiny that the PRA puts a bank under to ensure that it's comfortable with awarding that IRB accreditation is pretty substantive. You know, I don't get the strong sense through my engagement with Metro Bank over the last couple of years that financial management is a, is a particularly strong point. And I think 18 months is ambitious for any bank in that context. All the more so now. Let me go to Nick for a very final quick word on this. One of the striking things about Metro and about Vernon Hill actually over the past decades is how his core supportive investors seem to love him so much. They stand by him, give him extra capital whenever he wants it. Has that cult been punctured now? It somewhat remains to be seen. Certainly so far I haven't heard any reports of any massive sudden changes in the shareholder base, but um, it kind of depends how much faith people have in Mr Hill's vision of that whole old school customer service branch-based model slowing growth is bad the capital hit is bad but they are still growing they are still by most accounts pretty popular with customers so to an extent it's always been a pretty divisive stock i think that battle's probably going to continue for a while yeah the bull bear battle is probably going to escalate if anything nick thanks very much and also thank you to john in dublin Let's move on to our second topic and a look back at Davos. David, you were there all last week. You're looking pretty bushy-tailed this morning. You've got over the kind of partying and long days. What were your highlights? Well, I think it's hard to pick out a highlight because this was my first Davos, but everybody there told me it was the gloomiest for some time. Indeed, it sort of fell to Axel Weber, not known for his sort of tub-thumping optimism, to say that everybody was being too gloomy that Brexit would probably be okay, that there would probably be a US-China trade deal, and that markets were overreacting to the various sort of geopolitical tensions. And indeed, that was kind of the overarching mood of bankers. They were almost irritated, if you like, feeling that markets were out of step with the fundamentals. As you say, Axel Weber, now the chairman of UBS, formerly head of the Bundesbank, is hardly a man prone to optimism. But he represented that cabal of people who were frustrated with an overreactive market. That's right. And I mean, I suppose the sort of silver lining, if you like, is that last year, which was a much more upbeat Davos, the mood there proved to be wrong. Indeed, there were sort of two big predictions. One, that Saudi Arabia would open up and come into the international fold, creating tons of business for international banks. And second, that Emmanuel Macron would be the saviour of European banking. And a year later, both of those predictions looked to have been wrong. 
Yeah, I think Davos has a record of when it's optimistic, you can be pretty sure it's going to be a horrible year. I'm not sure whether the reverse applies. We'll have to wait and see, I guess. But thank you for that update, David. So let's move on to our third and final topic and a catch up with Barclays. Caroline and Jane, you're tag teaming in the legal case that has been brought by the Serious Fraud Office against four former directors of the bank. And this is, of course, over the 2008 capital raising when there were alleged inducements paid to the Qatari investors who pumped billions of pounds into the bank and helped save it and see off the threat of UK government capital injections slash nationalisation. Caroline, tell us about the background to this in a bit more detail. What exactly are the allegations against these four people? What did they do and how did it all come about? So this is the Serious Fraud Officer's case against John Varley, who was the chief executive of Barclays at the time in 2008, and then three of his top lieutenants, Roger Jenkins, who was the swashbuckling dealmaker for the Middle East at the time, Tom Kolaris, who headed up wealth management, and then Richard Both, who worked in the investment bank's financial institutions group. So the SFO alleged that the four conspired to pay the Qataris secret fees that weren't disclosed to the market or to other investors through what are known as advisory services agreements. And the SFO say that these deals were essentially just a smokescreen to pay the Qataris the extra fees they were demanding to invest. Jane, tell us what the latest is. They've been in court now for a few days. We've heard a few days of evidence. It was quite some time before the jury was able to be selected, given that this is supposedly going to be a six-month commitment. What's been the juiciest evidence so far? Yeah, I mean, what we've heard so far is the prosecution opening, which has taken about sort of five days where the SFO has opened their case. So we haven't yet heard sort of live witnesses, but we've been given an overview of the case of the jury have. So some interesting things have come out. There's been emails and details of telephone conversations between the executives, one in which John Varley, the former chief executive of Barclays, was described as being scared to death about the UK government stepping in to nationalise Barclays at the height of the 2008 financial crisis. Bob Diamond, who is not on trial, was described as being paranoid about the UK government stepping in to do this. And Roger Jenkins expressed concern in a conversation he had with Richard Both, panicking Barclays was about to be nationalised in October 2008. And panicking because, as he put it, the UK government wouldn't look kindly on compensation over a million dollars. Obviously, sort of if Barclays had gone into public ownership, the UK government would have looked at bonus and compensation structure and dividend policies as well. Yeah, just to be clear to listeners, when we're talking about compensation here, this is the rather unpleasant terminology that bankers use to talk about pay. Not that they've really been compensated for anything, but this is rather depressing, isn't it, Caroline, that, you know, I remember talking to John Varley at the time and others within the bank about their concerns about UK government bailout. And it was all about the damage to shareholders, damage to Britain, the damage to the kind of European banking setup. But at least some people seem to have been far more concerned about their own pay levels than anything else. Well, that's certainly true. I mean, I think some of the transcripts that we've read in court and we've heard in phone calls highlight that Mr. Varley was indeed worried about the strategic direction of the bank had it been nationalised. But also it's pretty clear that certainly front of mind for many of those involved was the fact that they probably wouldn't be able to get their multi-million pound bonuses. I mean, for this fundraising alone, Roger Jenkins was paid a £25 million bonus. And indeed, the jury's heard a memo demanding payment to that effect. I mean, I think one of the things that this 
case has done is really lift the lid on the frenetic deal making that happened and just the down to the minute negotiations that had to happen in order for Barclays to get this away and stay out of the hands of UK government control. And of course, at the time, it was hailed as a great success when Royal Bank of Scotland was being bailed out in an emergency rescue by the British government. HBOS was falling over Lloyds very soon after, as Jane, you covered at the time as banking correspondent, was bailed out as well. And of course, Barclays looked like it had got the capital that it needed without any downside, albeit a rather expensive bit of capital. But it's all rather coming home to roost now. Absolutely. And I mean, today we heard the prosecution allege that, you know, the prospect of a UK government bailout was very unattractive to Barclays because it would mean it limited the flexibility of the bank. But it also meant that some of the people at the top of Barclays would have to leave. You know, some of the top executives would have to leave as a result of taking taxpayer money. And also levels of remuneration would be attacked at Barclays. And, you know, as I say, we've heard this kind of memo today from Roger Jenkins, who is basically sort of saying that he ought to be paid a bonus as a result of his attracting Qatari capital and ensuring that Barclays didn't have to take taxpayer money. I mean, he sort of said, you know, he basically saved the bank and he deserved the money to save our asses and jobs. Eloquent. Caroline, explain one thing. Why is it these four individuals and not any others and indeed not the bank itself that is on trial here? Yes, yeah, so we obviously have to be a little bit careful in what we say while there are live proceedings. But one thing we are positively allowed to report is that previous SFO charges against Barclays, the corporate, were scrubbed late last year in quite a blow to the SFO's case. And particularly the bank had been charged with, as well as fraud, the same as the human defendants, as we call them, also in relation to a $3 billion loan that it gave to Qatar just as the second fundraising was closing. So those parts of the SFO's case are no longer part of the trial. So Jane, where does it go from here? As I said, I think the jury's been told to expect this to run to six months. We're clearly only in the first few days. What are we going to hear next and what are you braced for? Yeah, well, basically the opening is likely to finish this week sometime. And then I think we're getting into witnesses. So we haven't got a witness list yet or an order of witnesses, but we know certain individuals are going to give evidence, including Marcus Aegis, who was chairman of Barclays at the time. So what he says will obviously be very interesting. And then after that, obviously, once the prosecution case is finished, the defence case will begin. And again, that could last some time so it could be six months for this trial thank you both very much well that's it for this week all that's left for me to do is to thank david nick caroline and jane here in the studio and our guest from good body stockbrokers john cronin also thank you for listening and if you're not already an ft subscriber do take a look at our latest subscription offer at ft.com slash offer. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.